If you happen to have a pew Bible in front of you, you can go ahead and pull out your digital copy of the Bible if you feel better about that. Starting in Galatians chapter 3, we've been in a series on Galatians. Let me kind of jump into this. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. We are, uh, by the way, in your blue Bible, that would be page 824. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, I know when you're contemplating your cool Greek Bible tattoo that this is the go-to verse. And it's probably not the most compelling verse in the Bible, but I love here that we get the Apostle Paul just ready to open a can on the church of Galatia. Our church tradition, uh, what Echo comes a part of, is a very uh, Bible-based church tradition. We're like, we want to be just like the New Testament church. And I always laugh about that because I'm like, do you really want to be like the New Testament church? Because they were kind of jacked up. They never got everything exactly right. And that's why I love that Paul starts off by just saying, who has possessed you? And you know, not to really think about this within the spiritual realm, like this aspect of possession, you know, the bewitching. Maybe your mind just immediately goes to, um, you know, the, the TV show. I don't know if anybody watched that in syndication. Like every, all, all of my references are becoming more dated the older I get. But, you know, when we used to come home from school, I swear I used to watch Leave it to Beaver, even though it was decades old. And then there was Bewitched too, which was just a... You know, Blake's looking at me like, I have no reference for this, do you? None. Okay. There was a Will Ferrell movie that did a riff on it that was absolutely horrible. You can just IMDB this stuff later. I think of this guy. I think of Frank Mesmer, who you might be unfamiliar with. He lived in the 1700s, and Frank Mesmer, it was, I wish I had lived in the 1700s because I would have been brilliant in the 1700s because you could come up with basically anything and get people to buy it in. And what Frank Mesmer did, he said, look, there is a compound within humanity that will allow you to manipulate the, the universe. And I have figured out how to manipulate that so I could get people people to do what I want them to do, which, you know, he really couldn't, but he told people he could, which was impressive, which again, this is why I was born in the wrong era, because I would have been awesome at this. And if you can see, yes, Frank Mesmer is the person for whom the word mesmerize is named after. And if you think of somebody who is mesmerized, you think about them being manipulated. So here we go, is that the Apostle Paul is starting the third chapter of Galatians by saying, who has mesmerized you? Who has bewitched you? Why are you all demon-possessed? Which, in order to understand that, let's go back in this series that we're in right now. We've, we've called this series in the book of Galatians both Backpacks and Burdens, and I really want to overview where we've come over the last few weeks because Chris introduced the sixth chapter first, which is where Paul lands on this, is that we need to carry each other's burdens. We need to keep them with us because that is our Christian obligation. It's who we are. But when he starts the book, what Paul starts, and Kelly talked about this, is this idea that we need to be faithful to our calling as people of God that we need to live that best out. And then last week, Chris talked about loving, loving the different because 
That was what the Galatian church was struggling with. They were struggling to live out their calling with other people. And now we arrive in the third chapter of Galatians, and I'll offer that this is basically the crux. This is what Paul is trying to talk to the church in Galatia about, and he is at the point of criticizing them for how they are viewing the world. And I have the privilege of speaking this week and next week, and we're going to take chapter three and split it up over two weeks because it is this important part of the book. And let's figure out then what Paul's gripe is with the people in, the, in Galatia. And by the way, Galatia is not a city. It was a region in modern-day Tur- Turkey. So it was a group of churches. So it's not like just one church was jacked up, but a lot of them were feeling this way. And what they were is they were stuck in an attitude of legalism. And I would offer that even though you know, we, we see this in Judaism, and if, you're, if you've read through the Bible, if you've had part of this, you know, we understand that legalism is an issue, and some people believe that's what the major problem of Judaism was, was legalism. But I would offer that even in the Old Testament, even though there are commands and laws, God's intention in that was not that his people become legalistic. He wanted to use the commands as a framework for them to better understand where he was calling them toward. He needed to give them some sort of outline. But instead of understanding God as the centrality of this, they made the commands the most important thing. And in doing so, they tended to become legalistic. So I don't know anybody in here today, maybe you are legalistic, but even if you are, you're probably not proud of it. You're maybe a closet legalist where you're like, yeah, because that's just not the best way to live. Like nobody, nobody loves a legalist. Is, is that a bold statement? Is that an accurate statement? Like I didn't have that in my notes. I'm just going to make that statement and roll with it. Nobody loves a legalist. So if you are that, nobody loves you. Just deal with it. Which illustrates it well because a legalist deals in absolutes. So you see what I did there? I'm meta, y'all. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum, which would be, and, the, and, and you've got to stick with me as I paint this out, because where I believe legalism is, I'm going to say libertarianism is the opposite end of the spectrum, and some of you might be political libertarians, and you'd be like, now I'm patently offended. If you weren't before, you are now. But I don't want you to view libertarianism in a political view, but just in a way of how we view ourselves in our society, if you were at the point where you're like, look, I am the opposite of keeping rules. I think there are no rules. And I would offer that the way that the Apostle Paul is going to grapple with this in the book of Galatians is to say that this is the society in which the churches of Galatia live. So it wasn't a Jewish society. This was a Roman Greco-influenced society That was incredibly libertarianism. You could drink or chew or go with girls who do. Right, Susan? That's my go-to phrase for the libertarian. Just all's good in the hood, okay? So here's the idea about this, is that there is freedom in libertarianism, right? You're like, no, there are no rules, and let's be free. And what's interesting then is what Christianity aims to do What the ideal practice of Christianity is the way of Jesus in the midst of that. So it's this recognition that there are rules, okay, but I want to experience a freedom that is not tied up in legalism. But at the same time, if I live where there are no rules, that is a horrible place to do because I become God myself. The way of Jesus is the way of the middle, okay? Now, this is something I talk about all the time, And I realize it's become a mantra for my life, 
But I think it's something that even though I see that as a goal, we continually struggle with, is to walk the middle way is not as easy to be an extremist, correct? Because it's a lot easier to be a legalist because, hey, I understand there are rules and I'm going to keep them, I'm going to be dedicated to that. Or to say there is nothing there. It's easy to live life on the fringes. When you're in the middle, you're always in an area of uncertainty of not knowing where you're at. And therefore, when we try to live the middle way the way of Jesus, we struggle. And this is the reason the Apostle Paul writes the book of Galatians. Now with that as an introduction, Galatians chapter 3 verse 1. Because I want to go past my favorite part of the verse, you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you, to this. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now I will go back and say, notice that Paul starts this chapter with a question. And what we're going to see in the first few verses of Galatians is Paul asking a lot of questions. This is something that has been difficult for me to figure out, but when I was an adjunct professor, you determine this really quickly. As you're like, how do I make sure that the students are learning to think on their own? The way that people usually like to teach is to just throw information out there, to spew imperatives, but the more creative way, if you will, the Socratic method, right, is to be able to ask questions as a way of spawning people to think. And if you look at the life of Jesus, what does he do all the time? Jesus is always asking questions. He asks more questions than he answers mostly because he uses it as a tool to create a framework so that they understand a little bit more. So what Paul is trying to do, instead of just saying, well, let's just be honest, Paul does pull out. He's like, you idiots, right? He starts off a little harsh, but then he goes to his line of questioning and try to see, make them see why they are indeed idiots, right? And basically what he's saying is like, you know you know better. You know better than this. Why? Because in your midst, there were people who actually saw Jesus dead and alive again, right? In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, and he says that there were over 500 people who saw the resurrected Jesus before he ascended into heaven, okay? And some of those people had actually been in the churches of Galatia, so it's enough for you and I to have to struggle with this, but could you imagine that being like, okay, so you saw Jesus like clear as day, still had the marks in his hands, the scars from the nails. I saw that with my own eyes, and you might be more compelled to believe at this point, yet even though the people in Galatia had had the opportunity to talk to eyewitnesses, they were now like, eh, I'm not sure I'm convinced anymore. Okay, so there's this idea where Paul says the only explanation that I can think of is you're demon-possessed. Who has bewitched you? I'm sorry, but for some reason, just this little cartoon really kept with me this week. This is, this is supposed to be Jacob, a, a picture of Jacob wrestling with the angel, you know, or, or wrestling with the Lord, if you will, from Genesis. And I don't know if you can read here because, boy, that's a low res. Sorry about that. But the angel said to him, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. But lo, he could not, for the angel was hitting him with his own hands. I don't know, okay, I found it funny. Maybe this is just, I just think about this because you're just like, why are you hitting yourself, right? And the thing is, is that so many times you're like, why are we doing something that just seems ridiculous? But this is something I believe, and this is why maybe there's a connection here, I don't know. But I just wanted to get to, this idea is that basically the Galatians are wrestling with aspects of doubt. 
And even though they're experimenting with legalism, it still is causing doubt within their framework, with the way that they see faith. And this is one of the things that churches, and this is what we want to walk through because Paul does this with the churches of Galatia. This is something that churches sometimes struggle to be able to project because we don't want to you know, lead you to, on a path toward doubt. And in doing so, we kind of you know, close down that opportunity together and say, no, you, know, like you must believe, you must have faith because the scriptures say that over and over again. And there are points of affirmation of that idea, but at the same time, what the Bible does is open us up for the possibility to expose our humanity and say, we are creatures of doubt. And even though I, you know, my degrees say I'm a theologian, and even though I have been in the church my entire life, and I've been in the ministry for over a couple decades, I am not going to lie to you. There are points that I, too, experience doubt. There are times when I look in the mirror and I'm saying, do I really buy into everything that is happening here? And that doesn't then need to be a time of crisis if we open up to the idea that it's okay to wrestle with doubt. So what I want to say here is that even though Paul is speaking a little harshly to the Galatians, what he wants them to do is realize this is the path that we are on. Help me rationalize the source of your doubt. And that's what he'll continue to do here. I just wanted to, before we move on, think about this within Hebrews chapter 13, is that even when we are in the midst of doubt, the anchor for us can be is that God does not lose faith in us. Like that is the empowering thing that I see within this in the scriptures as well, is that even when there are points where we might not have the answers, it's not as if God departs from us. Because he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And that should be a framework that at least gives us space to doubt. Does that make sense? We may move. God does not. And therefore, even if we're journeying outside of that, we can do so in safety with the recognition that he's still going to be there. Do me a favor. Verse 2. Let's continue. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? So as he is addressing the legalism of the people who were formerly Jews, right? These were the first Christian converts, so they have this Jewish heritage. What he asks them is, you know, what really allowed you to be empowered? He basically makes this dichotomy of works versus spirit, okay? Because I don't want to paint this law versus spirit because that's not true because the spirit was working through the law. It's actually not about the commands that the Jews were holding on to. It was the way that they saw the commands working in their lives because their belief was the commands exist for me to obey them and in obeying it, I have accomplished something. So it was not about you know, law versus spirit was about works and how we make the law relevant in our life. And this is something that we do commonly, even though we're not Jewish. There's many people who paint a Christianity that says, well, there's a lot of commands in the Bible, and my Christianity is dependent upon my obedience to that. So the better I obey the commands in the Bible, the better Christian I am. And what Paul is trying to say is that is not the middle way. That is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is understanding that it is not the law of God that's the enemy, it is actually our belief in the works of the law. And this happens a lot, right, with us in our lives. 
And maybe you, you know, maybe you're not most confident, but even those of us who lack confidence, we take a sense of pride in our accomplishments, right? Like that's what your whole LinkedIn page is. You know, it's this, you know, first it's like this life preserver when I'm trying to find a new job, but it's also like, okay, what have I accomplished professionally and that's where I'm gonna list it. And by the way, there's only so many synonyms that we can use, you know, to be like, I make photocopies, right? It's like, I empowered, I steerheaded, I, you know, just all these different ways of expressing it. Is that what you guys do? When I go to LinkedIn, I just basically go to thesaurus.com and use the same word five times to build up my profile. No one, is this just me? All right, I will own this. Maybe, how about this better example? So right now, uh, we are gutting our kitchen because all of our appliances died, and so I'm trying, you know, gutted the lower floor and trying to make that a kitchen again. So, you know, we, we have to figure out, okay, what kind of kitchen do you want? We have appliances, but let's just be honest. At the end of the day, a kitchen is a kitchen, it's a kitchen, right? Like, I just need places to store stuff. So I, I, I need cabinets, where do I go? I go to, the, I, I go to Ikea. You know, now, you know, being a, you know, Midwestern American, like, you know, I look in the Ikea catalog and basically it's most of my house, right? There's nothing that says, you know, I'm a good Midwesterner who is kind of, you know, just really cheap that I'm going to go to Ikea, right? I have enough particle board for days. So I'm putting together my cabinets right now my Ikea cabinets, and dude, I just flew through that this time. Like, you know, some of you guys are like, you know, what is the, the kerfluffin, you know, the, you know, how does the kerfluffin work with the axapakin, you know, like all these different Swedish terms. No, I nail the Ikea, but there's actually, it's interesting, is there's a, there's a term that has become popular called the Ikea effect, and the Ikea effect is a psychological, um, a psychological study that showed that we tend to value things that we make more than other things. So that if you've created it yourself, you're like, this is valuable, right? It's really the point to where, you know, it, like you're going through a bunch of trash, you know, and you're like, look, what, what is that name of the lady who, you know, she's on the Netflix that she throws everything away, you sent it to her. What's her name? Marie Kondo, yeah. I've not watched it yet, I've just heard about this. But because I was doing that before, like I've, I've had my essence for a while, I would chuck whatever. I am the guy who throw things away. But then you get to this something that you created, right? It's like, I made this and you're like, oh, I can't get rid of this, because it's mine. Because I built this. You know, if it's my daughter's stuff from second grade, chucking it. But if it's something I made last week, I'm gonna hold on to this, because it's mine. I made this, right? And I think that's the dichotomy of works or spirit. It's this idea that we take pride in accomplishment and what we've done, and that's not the middle way, because the middle way is reliance on who God is and what God continues to do in us and through us. And that's what Paul wants the Galatians to understand, is that you are not holy because of what you do. You are holy because of what the Spirit is doing in you. And how did that Spirit come? Did you create the Holy Spirit? Did you bring the Holy Spirit into you? Or is it a reflection of what God is doing in your life? He wants them to realize, where's the middle way, and how are you arriving there? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. 
Paul writes, what you have heard from me, keep is the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Jesus Christ. Guard the good deposit. The good deposit is the Holy Spirit. Guard the good deposit that was trusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So the Spirit is a deposit. God has placed it within us. You do not earn that. You do not make that. You do not create that. That is the gift of God. That is the middle way. Paul is saying, why are you giving up this for what you've created? It's just not worth it. Verse 3 of Galatians chapter 3. Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? So there's this idea, again, he's, he's really not being as polite as you could possibly be. He's like, are you really, really dumb? You know, so I, I, I have to believe that the relationship between Paul and these churches was as such that he could write these things, right? It's not like, you know, that first time introductory email. This is, look, we've lived life together. We've been in the trenches. So why are you being so stupid about this? Okay, and this is the reason that Paul is irate with them. Because he's saying you are missing this, this trajectory that God has put you on. For you were Jewish people, you were people of the law. Like you, you really thought that your works, the way that you obeyed the law was your identity. It wasn't, but you made an end to that. But then we introduced you Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the fulfillment of the law. This should change everything about you. And you went there, but at the same time, you were like, uh, but this, the way that we used to live was so good. There were so many things. I could wake up in the morning. I had rhythm. I had routine. I had all these different things. And because of that, they are now veering from this grace component all the way back to law. The irony is, is that even though they love the habits, this is not like returning to something old. It's actually trying to, yet again, create something new, like a religious hybrid. So many times I talk to people where I'm just, you know, trying to do this spiritual conversation because, you know, just trying to gauge out and they will so many times just talk about a path that they are choosing that they're creating for themselves. And it's not bad then, again, as we've said here at the beginning, it's not bad to have doubt, but when your solutions to the doubt is to create the solution by yourself because you, even though there have been billions and billions of people who have lived throughout human history, that you're the one who has figured out exactly how to live, there's arrogance in that. As much as we might to say, oh, that's creative brilliance. No, it's an arrogance to say, I'm going to dismiss everything that all these people have done for, for thousands of years and create my own way. Paul's frustration with the church of Galatia was that they were at this point of just trying to work out their own solution to salvation, to take absolutely the best of what they wanted to and chuck everything else and still, and still be cool with who they were, and how they chose to live that out. And Paul's issue here is that, look, you are relying too much on yourself. And friends, so doubt, not a bad thing, but when the solution to that adult, doubt is ourselves in singularity, ourselves, me, trying to determine what that is, it's not healthy. It's you trying to make a decision apart from everybody else. That's Paul's frustration. And I miss this 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's why for Christ's sake, Paul said he delights in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. 
The opposite of self-reliance, right? Is for him to say, I go through all of this, but it's not about me. It's about what God is doing through me. So I am not the hero of this story. God is the hero. Wrap up this section in verses 4 and 5. Will you read verses 4 and 5 with me? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? I love the way that Paul talks about their spiritual trajectory as he's saying, look, you suffered for this. We don't know if this implies persecution. It's interesting, some of the translations, because this is an older translation of the NIV, the new one has changed suffered to experience. The word itself has been used in both ways. I do like the idea of suffering because, let's be honest, usually when we're talking about faith, there's some aspect of suffering. Maybe it's not a persecution. Maybe it's just the internal, the internal, one more time, internal, can I do it? Internal turmoil. That's tough. I might have created a tongue twister without knowing. Internal, (laughs) I can't do it. Internal turmoil. Never use that again. Why would you struggle with something so hard to just give up on the end result, right? I'm in the midst of marathon training. Have Have I told you before how you know somebody's a marathoner? Just wait, they'll tell you. So I'm in marathon training. Okay, so what's funny is that yesterday I'm like, yeah, I have to wake up at 6.30 and run 15 miles because in this heat, if you don't wake up, it's hot and you're just miserable. So you're, and by the way, you're miserable anyways because here's the idea about it because I see all these people who are like, I'm a happy runner, you know, like I got to go up and get my seven miles. I'm like, this sucks. Like I'm a marathoner and I hate waking up to run. This morning I was still sore. I was like, I got to go again. How do you know if somebody's a marathoner? They'll tell you. I had to wake up this morning and run five miles before this because I just knew I just needed to get that in. But here's the thing. You know the reason why I'm doing that is because on November 7th, I'm running a marathon and I want this to be my best marathon ever. And I know that that won't happen unless I wake up every day and train. But could you imagine if it's like I've done all this and like the seventh, I'm like, man, I'm tired. I'm just going to sleep in and I'll just do another marathon later. Like it would be just throwing everything away. Why would you do all of the suffering, all of the toil to get to a point and just chuck it out the window? And that's Paul's question here. Why? Why would you just forget everything we've gone through just because you're having doubts about where you're at? Again, not the idea that you need to be doubtless. Not the idea that you have to have a perfect trapped down faith, but he's just saying, will you just not stop and believe what you've heard? You know this. You know what's happening. Will you just stop and consider everything you've gone through and believe? And I think that's the thing that I really land on with this part of the text. Because I I kind of enjoy it because I just like to see Paul going off on people. Like I I find some demented joy in that. This is my point of biblical study. But at the same time, I'm just like, if you are in those place of doubt... If, if you're struggling right now with aspects of your faith, does that make you feel good or it might make you feel worse? You know what I mean? Because you're like, man, I'm the people Paul's talking about. I'm the one who is having this point where I'm going back to the way I, I used to live. I'm the one who's creating a new system of belief. I'm the one who's wrestling with doubt and there's no answer. So if you're in that point, I want to bring it back to the spectrum right here. 
Because I think this is important for us because it just depends how we respond to this. Because even in the midst of doubt, you're like, well, I'm just going to choose just to be, to exist. No, you're not. Do not deceive yourself. You're always making a choice, okay? You might not want to be categorized as such, but even in the midst of doubt, you're making some sort of choice. Let me even offer this. Maybe even in your doubt, you're becoming like a, a, a person who is just immersing themselves into a legalistic perspective because you think the ritual will save you right? You've met those legalist Christians. You're like, I despise them. But you know what? Those might be people who are living through great moments of doubt in their life because they really aren't sure they believe the middle way. So they're immersing themselves into what they know, which is just a series of legalism. But at the same time, maybe you're in the point of doubt and you're just like, I'm at the point where it's all BS. I'm done with it. I'm finished. I'm just going to live my life and be free, not have to worry about this. The middle way, friends, is brilliant. The middle way of Jesus doesn't mean that you have to know everything. The middle way of Jesus does not mean that you have to hold all certainty in your mind for what is going on in the scripture. What the middle way is, is an admission of, look, I believe this, I'm holding on to it, I might not always get it, but I'm going to choose the journey with Jesus because he is the best way. Because he accepts me even in the midst of all my doubts. I think that's beautiful. Any other way, I really think, is being mesmerized, being bewitched, buying into something that says, man, I, I have to choose a way that is away from where Jesus is calling me to be. This is the thing that I came back with it. God wants you to think. God wants you to think. I believe it's biblical. <laughs> I'm not going to go through a systematic theology to tell you that God wants you to think. Part of my studies were with the Jesuits over at Xavier University in the theology department. And what's interesting is the Jesuits now is that they think anything. If you want to you know, uh, apply for any sort of belief, the Catholic Jesuit order will believe anything. They rely on the influence of Vatican II, which is where the Roman Catholic Church landed in the middle of the 20th century. And this was basically the permissiveness of the Pope in the middle of the 20th century was, hey, you know what? You can be a good Catholic and you can be a thinking cap Catholic. And that opened up this place for the Jesuits to be like, we like that. And I'm telling you, when I studied with Jesuit priests, there was just, I, I was thinking about it because I've been running through campus. You know, did I tell you that I'm a marathoner and I run? I've been running through Xavier University because I did classes over there. And I remembered all of like the, I could remember in each building which crazy faculty member I had right there. Like I had the crazy, like I had the, the Jesuit Zen Buddhist, right? And then I had the the, the Jesuit process theologian. It was just all this thing where they're just like, no, you can think, and you can think whatever you want. I don't think it negates the fact that God does want you to think. If you believe that being a good follower of Jesus means checking your mind at the door, you are misled, you are bewitched. Faith is hard. Faith can be challenging. 
and just raises the importance of the community of God to come together and to give you a place to think. And that's what we've tried to do here in this community. You know, this is, this is, this is a good community to do that. Because some of you over the years, I've talked to you about the different aspects of your faith and your doubt, and you're still here, and I love it because I think that's the environment we've created. Can I be honest? Some people have checked out at the door. Like, they've come in, and they're like, oh, yeah, this is a cool small church, you know, where we could come in and do all this stuff. But really, they wanted to live at that extreme, and they didn't want to have to grapple with the faith. If you're in the midst of grappling with faith, this is a safe place where you can do it. Will you do me this favor? With one of our leaders, whether it's Eric or Larry or Seth or Kendra or Kelly, whomever, just if you're in the midst of those doubts, just tell one of us. Let us journey along with you there. Because God wants you to think. Because I would offer that the, the concept of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the grace of Jesus Christ, it's not always easy. But man, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's not bewitched. Brings us to the time of worship of communion. We take communion every week. And again, I've studied, uh, and actually I took whole classes, not a whole class, but whole portions of classes in seminary on communion. I should love it is that we tried to always spell out exactly what communion is. There are theological arguments about communion that stem centuries. And I will tell you that as a theologian, I still have no idea what communion does. I don't know. All I know is that the scriptures call us together as God's people to remember the cross. And we do so together by eating the bread and drinking the cup. I hope that gives you who are doubting hope. Because again, I don't know what communion does and is, but I do it because I believe in the God who gave it to us as a gift. And maybe you're in the midst of this where you're like, I don't know what Jesus is doing in my life right now. And maybe the best response for you is to take communion with this group, with this body of believers, so that you can focus on the cross and think, and think what he's doing. So that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to have a time of communion. Kristen's going to come up and play. We're going to have some people pass this around. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to communion with us together. Will you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the Apostle Paul. I thank you for the church in Galatia, Father. And um, we know that the church survived in that area for generations, so hoping they came back to this middle way. But I thank you for this message for us here today to understand is that, boy, faith can be hard. We have moments of doubt in our lives, but God, help us to cling to you nonetheless. Thank you for the grace of Jesus that saves us for eternity but thank you for the grace that you grant us in our minds to be able to piece through how you need us to live and move in this world. We're not worthy, God, and that's the message of Jesus. We are not worthy, but you are most worthy. And we remember that now as we commune in Jesus' name. Amen.